salutations. My name is Tyler Illinick, and this is Raven Drool, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. In this episode, I speak with Vancouver, British Columbia's Tarek. I was reading that you kind of moved around quite a bit when you were younger, a couple places anyhow. Um, where, where were you when you first started kind of getting serious about uh, performing and songwriting and singing? Probably... The center point would be Calgary. Mm. And that's when I really think started get, getting going for me. I was writing songs before then, starting to a little bit, but uh, that seemed to be the place where things really started to take off. And uh, how old were you at that point? Uh, late teens, early 20s? Mid 20s, I think, around. I'd done a, a theater arts degree mm. as my undergrad degree, and then I sort of bummed around a little bit after that, not knowing exactly what to do with, with maybe some ideas that I was going to pursue acting as a career because I'd done a theater degree. And then actually I went back to school right after that because, uh, you know, when you've been in school for so long, it's sort of a nice safety, <laughs> safety net and it's hard to, hard to leave it. And so I started to do a master's degree, but at the same time I was writing songs and then I ended up in Calgary and and then, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just really kind of decided to turn my attention to music more full time at that point, probably because I don't know, really, maybe it's just timing some people that I met and, uh, yeah, there was just a real, you know, kind of a community that I connected with there and, and just was able to get more serious about music and, and playing shows. And it all sort of started to make more sense as a, as a real, you know, sort of something realistic to pursue. Now, when you got to Calgary, did you kind of um, immerse yourself in a local music scene, like you mentioned, community, to kind of go out to indie, mm-hmm. independent shows or whoever was coming through town? Talk about kind of the, the Calgary music scene, I guess, in the mid '90s when you uh, first arrived. Oh yeah, it was really, it was an interesting time to be there for sure. Um, yeah, I was out seeing shows all the time. You know. I, I, I always say this to friends who ask me about what Calgary was like, that it was just, a, it just felt like, and it probably still is this way. It's a small city and I feel like people are always welcoming and friendly. I feel like it's the kind of place where you can go. Uh, certainly from what I remember, my, my years living there, which were 10 in total, that you could always go to your, you know, your local bar and, and run into people you knew, or if you were a complete stranger, you'd make friends in no time. You know, people were always welcoming and, and that was the way it was there at the time and it was that way in the music scene as well and and you know you could connect with fellow musicians and make friends and, and yeah you'd go and see their shows and then they'd invite you to come and play some songs at one of their nights that they were playing and it, it just that you know that's where you know what i said earlier where it started to feel like it seemed like more of a possibility that you could make this happen it just started to make sense you know that there were just these opportunities that were coming um coming my way at the time so so yeah it was it was kind of a hot little scene at the time i know people were calling it like oh this is the next this is the next seattle you know because mm. you know the grunge scene had, had happened or was happening around that time so seattle was always the hot reference point was it always kind of the goal to be a solo artist or was it uh you just start out that way and you couldn't find people to play with in a band environment or what was kind of the, the mindset when you first began performing? No, I just, uh, yeah, I think I just 
always wrote songs by myself. I mean, I learned, you know, learned to play the guitar and, and that was my way of starting to, to be a songwriter. So it, it just, uh, I would just write songs alone by myself. So it just felt normal to go play them that way. Um, I couldn't, at that time I couldn't really, I didn't really, uh, I didn't really know how to write songs anyway, (laughs) figuring it out. So, you know, trying to figure out how to write them with other people was like, maybe seemed like even more of a mystery. So, (laughs) yeah. And, you know, like you say, when you're moving around, like I was just the guitar, you know, had a guitar and that was it. I was, Mm. it was just the easiest thing and, and, um, to just do it, do it, do it on my own. And I, I, you know, I kind of, I guess I had my, you know, eye on like, people like Bob Dylan and some of the other, you know, Neil Young and those kind of folky singers, singer songwriters, you know, but maybe that's a narrow category, but they were the, you know, they certainly had enough material where they were playing and performing as um, people with guitars. So it sort of seemed to be the, the vision of what I was trying to do that I wanted to go after. So it worked for me for a little while, but eventually, you know, living in, in Calgary, that I did, I did put a band together and started to do things that way. And, and, you know, again, this whole making friendships easily situation allowed for that. And it wasn't hard to find some people to play with and, and to kind of expand on, on that. So, you know, it's an interesting thing because I, I, you know, when we, you know, I know you not to jump too far ahead of time, mm-hmm. but when I think about situations now even you know like i i tend to still write uh, uh you know I, I a comfortable writing place for me will still be with a guitar alone in a room so mm. you know some songs I, it's not the only way i know that there are other ways to write which i maybe didn't know as much then or didn't have as much experience with then but i know i still like to write this way and and when i write those kinds of songs i still sometimes wonder are these songs songs that should just kind of exist in that way or you know or do, should they be experimented with a band in fact next week i'm going to experiment with um some players that i've never played with before on these songs that i've been just working on i've just written on my own no, okay. and i even said to the guy who, who wanted to, to to get together that i wasn't sure like if these songs were band songs like maybe maybe they are maybe they aren't you know mm-hmm. I, I i haven't completely figured out um whether band songs are better achieved uh, when they've been constructed in that way originally with the band. I've worked that way, you know, with, with Brasternaut, another one of my band projects. We wrote songs as a band, and so they made sense as a band. Sometimes when you write songs by yourself and then you stick a band on top, I don't know, like you have to figure out how to do that properly so that it actually works. Otherwise, it can kind of sound it doesn't fit or something. Or that maybe the song was better, better without that, or something like that. I don't know. Not in all cases, but you know, you, 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 that's sort of something that crosses my mind a little bit as I continue to figure out this mystery called songwriting. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you first started out again back in the '90s, uh, you mentioned like Bob Dylan and, and Neil Young, but were there any kind of uh, more current Canadian artists you kind of looked to that were kind of singer-songwriter esque? I mean, I remember I was like, I was like a Bruce Cupboard fan <laughs> early, like earlier than the, earlier than that, even when I was still in university, uh, I used to love all those sort of finger picking instrumentals that he did. Like I remember the titles of the song, like Sun Wheel Dance and things like that. 
you know, as, as someone who's trying to get good at guitar, I think, you know, it's no surprise one would be interested in, in Coburn because he's just, he's just those, they're just such melodic, lyrical sounding instrumental pieces. And I liked his, his songwriting too, his lyric writing as well. So that, that was somebody that was kind of on my radar for sure as a Canadian artist when I was just starting out. And is there a, a Bruce Coburn song from back then that really um, inspired you or that you really dug? I love the, uh, there was a song, Going to the Country. Well, one thing I loved about it was, again, he'd do this thing where he would play the melody and the guitar and say and double it with vocals. So mm. it was like a, and it was just a la la melody. So it was la 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 beautiful little melody and I'm, I'm i'm quite sure that it's doubled in the finger he's also playing the melody picking that melody in the guitar so it's doubled i think it's or it's some parts of the melody anyway are done that way you know the cut the, the the song is it's called going to the country and uh and there's that just that just that rich refrain of i'm going to the country Oh, sunshine, smile on me. <laughs> it always kind of comes back. It's one of those songs that comes back to that. Right. It's sort of simple, but I think even, you know, even then, I think it's something that I still kind of connect to now as someone who lives in the city, you know, with everything that we've kind of gone through in the world currently, you know, this sort of return to the peacefulness of, of nature. And um, I think it's something that, that spoke to me back then, even about it, and still find that it still resonates. Again, you know, it's not like anything complicated, but but it just it, it's just a beautiful uh, beautiful melody that fits with the words. You know that mm-hmm. that I think that's a really a big thing too. You know, in songwriting is where the music kind of fits the music and supports the music, and it it really feels like you you are as you're listening to that being drawn down down out some country road out into mm-hmm. the pastoral fields away from your troubles and away from, from the city. And, it, and that song just really has that power to do that. Silver roof flash. 
rushing by. Tractor trailer truck says goodbye with a sigh, and I'm going to the country. So how far um, along were you performing before you uh, worked yourself towards your first indie cassette, Graffiti? And that's early, so that's going back even before Calgary. I was living in Montreal, because I'm originally from Quebec, so I grew up in Quebec, and um, and and then I was living in... I didn't I didn't grow up in Montreal. I grew up in the rural, speaking of the country roads, so I, I grew up in the rural part of uh, Quebec, kind of um, an area called the Eastern Townships. So if, if you were in Montreal it would take you about say an hour or a bit to get out there. Um, so I grew up there, but then I did live in Montreal for proper for half a year or something like that. So some of that work was done there when I was living there. I mean, even the photographs, I think in there, the graffiti on the cassette tape is from Montreal graffiti. <laughs> uh, and um, the photograph of me that's I think inside is, you know, uh, a photograph that was taken outside my apartment in Montreal somewhere on the plateau. I, you know, I was hadn't really done that much, though, at that time in terms of playing or performing. It was uh, I had just started to, you know, accumulate a bunch of songs. I didn't really have that many. Probably all the ones I put on that tape were all the ones I had. <laughs> um, you know, maybe there was a couple outliers, but not many. So it was really my first kind of experiment in songwriting as far as live shows go not that much either i had hmm. i had really just played for friends i think mostly in parties or gatherings and things like that's what i would do uh small gigs i guess here and there i don't know little restaurant things or cafes hmm. like nothing very major um, oftentimes they were like even just like completely unplugged you know and just hmm. Hey, play in the corner over there. (laughs) Sure. You know, it's the kind of thing where you just take anything at that that stage. You know, it's it's kind of, you know, you kind of, I kind of look back on it and think, wow, you know, like that's sort of a fun place to be where you don't, you know, you're just willing to do anything. You're not so, you're not, you don't have any kind of preconceived notions about success or, or even what 
a song ought to be, you know. Um, it's a different kind of mindset to ever think you you were once in and you'll never get back there because you have all you have just new knowledge. But to think about how, you know that way of writing songs where you're just kind of quite quite free with what you're doing because you're not, you're not trying to to model it after anything because you don't really even know what that thing is. I mean, maybe you're modeling it a bit after things you've heard by other people, but uh, you know, you're still sort of fumbling, fumbling your way in the darkness a bit with it. And I like that. So that was really the period I was at when I was doing that graffiti artist tape. And I, I feel like it sort of shows, I listened to a little bit of it yesterday. It's funny. You know, when you asked about it, I, I had to go and look it up on that um, Calgary Cassette Preservation Society thing, which is pretty cool because I only have cassette copies of it. I have no digital. Huh. I have dat tapes. <laughs> I mean, that's what that's why I have dat tapes in the closet somewhere. <laughs> nice. I, you know, I don't have and I no dat machine to ever play them. <laughs> but, and I never play it because I don't have even have a cassette player anywhere. <laughs> So I was listening to it yesterday. I listened to the first two songs, and it was it was actually pretty cool to listen because, like I said, I feel like I can hear that naivety in the you know in the work of it, and 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 yet a certain energy too, uh, as well. Like it has kind of have a has a cool energy. Like I was really happy that I enjoyed listening to some of it. I kind of want to listen to the rest of it. Awesome. And I was like, this isn't bad, you know, like you know. I, I, at some point, I think I might have thought, "Oh, I'm never going to listen to that stuff because it's probably really bad." Yeah, it's not. No, it's 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 it's. Yeah, it's it's, cool, it's, actually, it's cool. It's cool. I yeah. mean, I would not maybe not write songs exactly like that anymore, but but it's got yeah, it's got a cool kind of energy to it. Your first three with like that to splat to a basement, you can really hear the growth. I find. I mean, as yeah. a as a listener who who doesn't know how to write songs, but I can hear it even between graffiti and splat, you can see your yeah. maturity. So it's interesting to kind of chart that journey across those three, for example, in the 90s. Totally, uh, totally right. I feel that too. And I mean, I, I also think partly the recording stuff too, if you mm-hmm. sort of track, you know, where we where I was doing these things. I mean, when I did that graffiti artist cassette, it was really the first stu- recording studio I'd ever been in. And it was a fine recording studio, but it was, it was a home recording studio. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a, a fellow named Peter Mendieta. I imagine still plays music out in the Eastern townships of Quebec. He was a, you know, speaking of finger picking guitar players, he was or he's really good at that. Um, and he would perform with his wife around, around the townships. Uh, I don't know if he still does, but so I went to his place and he actually lived in this cool house somewhere. I think it was like sort of near North Hatley, Quebec, which if anybody has ever been there or anybody listening knows that area, it's, it's a beautiful part of the world. You know, it's, it's sort of like, Oh, if you're going on a vacation outside of the city, you'd go there, but it, it wasn't exactly North Hatley, but anyway, it was at this house. It was like these fountains around and it was, he was very, it was very meditative. And I think, you know, he had like healing stones around the place and, and uh, yeah, we just sort of recorded in his living room. I remember. Yeah. And he had this dat tape machine and, and it was done very simply, just me and a guitar there. I think I had a friend come in and beat on, on a bongo drummer or, you know, something like that. And maybe mm-hmm. somebody come in and play a harmonica or something. Very, very minimal thing. Mm-hmm. Mostly I think I just sat and played and recorded it. So that probably was the most authentic way to capture it because that was all I, knew how to do was just sit and play songs and so why not just record that so so you know from there 
from that experience to Splat, which is a bit more, or that's getting into more of a studio studio, mm-hmm. you know, and I got, I remember getting a grant from a, like a private grant. I'm forgetting the name of it, but it was a very helpful privately funded grant that got, was able, I was like, okay, I can get to go into a studio and, um, and I, I did it with friends. You get with in Calgary. Uh, there was, you know, my friend Christian, who I don't know if he still makes records. I was, was thinking about him yesterday as well. You've got me thinking about all these nostalgic <laughs> <Awesome>. things. <laughs> Just having to sort of get in the mindset for 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 this. It's cool. Um, but I was remembering, you know, our, our time in the studio there, and and that was a studio called Sunday Sound, and and it was yeah. And then of course when we did Basement Songs, that was a full. Um, you know, that was a record label record. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so up and up the production level goes, you know, yeah, so indeed. that also change, changes things. Yeah. But you're right. Also experience and maturity and all of that. Too. Yeah. Like on Splat, even like you said, you brought in a lot of, you know, the percussion is more noticeable on that record. You know, it's more yeah. in line of what people would find out about you with the follow-up basement song that find it's more of a, a sibling to that record than graffiti would have been, I think. Yeah, because there was no band at all on mm-hmm. on that cassette on the graffiti artist cassette. As I say, it was just a handful of light touches, someone mm-hmm. playing a conga drum or something. But Vlad had full bands. Like we had drums and recorded drums. And I never had, it. you know. So I remember it was the first time I was in the sense of understanding how you recorded drums. I remember we set. Joe, the drummer, up in like the kind of this garage area, which is where Christian, the producer, would always record all the drums for all those Calgary records. You know, Baby and all of those bands were all recorded, I'm pretty sure, in those studios. And he would probably do it the same way, put the drums in that drum chamber. It was a big, it was just more like the garage. And then we record the drums there. And, and, you know, and then I had the bass player. I think we had everyone, I think everyone was sort of playing at the same time, but sort of isolated, but all of that. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it definitely was a more band record um, because I actually had started to play more live with, with that three piece. And um, so it made sense again to then record them because that's what we were doing live. So we were essentially, I guess it was a, a point of just interpreting what I was doing as a live performer in the studio and trying to capture it. So at first it was just a guitar. And then, and then when it became a more of a band thing, then we tried to capture that. So when you kind of bring in um, a few more members to the, to the live show and then ultimately the, uh, the album, how is it kind of different managing that not being used to it before? I mean, are you suggesting tempos? Are you saying play like, like this, or I want, I want this feel. What are the kind of the, uh, the, the conversations back and forth? How do you express what you want them to do on your songs? Well, it's a good question. Do you you mean like how how I do it now or how I did it back then? Well, let's start with back then and see if it's changed <laughs> to how how you, how you do it now. <laughs> I probably has changed. I mean, I think there's a, a various approaches uh, you can take. I mean, I think back then probably I I think I brought a pretty solid song to the group, you know, mm-hmm. um, because even though, say, the record Splat has a full band on it, I think those songs had been pretty ingrained as me playing them solo, because I was doing that for a little while before I introduced the band to them, you know. Mm. So the songs had really kind of had a shape and a, and a kind of character 
and, and that rhythm and the tempo that you're describing already kind of built in a little bit. Okay. So I feel like the band, you know, certainly enhanced all that. I, not, not, not to take away from what they brought to it, but you know, they, I, I, I probably brought a pretty clear blueprint of an idea at, to them and they then put their kind of stamp on it. And you're right. We probably did adjust tempos or sort of discuss some of those things a little bit, but the songs, you know, in terms of arrangement structure, I feel like they were, you know, I, I had kind of made them pretty clear. So if I sat down with someone to play and played them, just me on a guitar, they would go, okay, I see what you're doing. And I didn't have a lot of questions about like, I don't know if it should, you know, slow down here or, or go to halftime here. And, and at that time, to be honest, I don't think I understood thinking about that too, too mm -hmm. much, you know, I mean, I understood some basic, like, okay, yeah, this, maybe the feel changes a little bit here. I wasn't like completely out of it, but, but I feel like those conversations are maybe a little bit more complex now because, you know, even after my years of, of work in the Brastronaut crew in which rhythms and, um, you know, the certain musical complexities are, are, are more prevalent in that music than say some of the music that I've just written as a, on my own. Um, you know, I've kind of come to understand maybe a little bit better about like how you could switch. You could have a completely, you, you might hear a drum beat and go, well, that works with that song, but, but Brassnaut would always push for, as a collective, we would always push for like, mm, what about this kind of a feel? And, and because we had musicians who really understood the technical theories of music in that band, they would change, they would, you know, discuss it with Brennan, who's the drummer, who also, you know, is an educated musician in terms of, you know, uh, music school stuff. Mm -hmm. So they could find these rhythms that would be, you know, that would, that were just better than something that's more straight ahead. I don't know. They would just find ways of, you know, rhythmically interpreting a song that uh, that you, that I might not have thought of. So I feel like maybe the discussions are a little bit different now because mm. uh, my ears are more attuned to rhythmic possibilities. Mm. It's still challenging sometimes because I, you know, you think that, oh, it should just have this feel to it. And it's a pretty basic feel and it works. You know, you go in and jam it out and you're like, okay, that works pretty good. But mm -hmm. Um, if someone who's like really good with rhythmical changes can come in and say, how about you put this kind of a beat? It can, it can be night and day to a song. Like hmm. it'll change the song completely. It's the same song. It's the same tempo. It's just that they've, the drummers say change the rhythm. Um, same with the bass player. I mean, a bass line could be just playing bass, the, the sort of following the root notes, but, or it also could be something more melodic and, you know, when you're not, I'm not a bass player necessarily. So I don't, uh, how do you find the language to communicate mm -hmm. what, what that would be if you're, if you're jamming with somebody, I don't know. Like, uh, so sometimes it just depends on who you're, who you're working with. I have worked with people who, who, who come up with very sort of melodic bass lines that really work just because they understand how to do that. So maybe I don't quite know. So the answer to your question is that maybe I don't always know how to art articulate what I want mm. now, but I also know more when I hear what I, what I like when I, mm -hmm. and, and when I hear like, it's kind of flat, I can kind of hear that. Uh -huh. But when I hear, I'm, when I hear that it pops, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, right, that's right, right. kind of it, you know? Mm -hmm. 
so back then, I don't know if I knew that as much. I think I was maybe a bit more like, yeah, that's cool. Let's, you know, mm -hmm. which isn't always bad either, because sometimes, you know, overanalyzing isn't necessarily good. Sometimes right, right. just going with your, if your gut can be a good way to go. And I was just probably responding in that way to things back then. But um, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's a constant growing process, I guess. Before we move off of uh, Splat, though, I was uh, pleasantly surprised to hear an early version of Not Just a Waiter on there, oh, yeah. which is a fantastic song still. Can you talk about the origin of that song? I mean, how much of that is based on your own life experience? Is that just creating a character? Well, that's based on personal experience. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that falls in the autobiographical category of songwriting for sure, because I did pretty much work in the service industry for about a decade. Uh, and I worked in, I think, coffee shops is pretty much is referenced in the song. So I did that. The origin of the song, I don't know. I mean, I think I tended to write a lot of my own ex experiences back then. You know, I, I didn't really write I wrote pretty autobiographically, I'd say, for the mm. most part, for quite a while. Uh, I mean, I still do, not only, though, but back then, I think that's all I knew what to do. I didn't. Mm. I didn't, don't think I thought of any other way of writing. I just thought, that's how you write songs. It's going to be about stuff that's happening to you. So I know that it has a very strong reference to Lou Reed's song, what I'm forgetting what song it is, Down on the Boulevard, I think. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That song. I've listened to that song. Gone. Ooh, boy, I really kind of I did some hard, hard kind of borrowing in terms of a feel. Let's call, let's call it a, a very good nod to uh, Lou Reed's song there, but an homage, if you will. An homage, yeah. Um, so I don't know. Maybe I was listening. You know, it was interesting though because I think maybe at that time I might have been listening a little bit to things that were acoustic guitar type of artists. I listened a lot to acoustic guitar artists, you know, when I first started playing. Um, and I mentioned a few already, you know, mm. one of the artists that I liked at the time too, when I was first learning to play was Ani DeFranco. Mm. And I, I loved her. I loved her music. And I feel like when I listen to stuff on splat, I mean, I'm like, I can totally hear that I was doing a very strong uh, homage. I want to <laughs> use the word again to Ani DeFranco. So I was doing that and I was really into acoustic guitar kind of stylings and voicings and ways of playing. And so anything acoustic guitar would just grab my attention. But, you know, I think when I was living in Calgary, when I got there, you, you, you know, there was, there was more electric guitars around and <laughs> um, people played in punk rock bands and, and I bought an electric and I think I started to just to listen to more, electric guitar kind of music that still had a lyrical, you know, what I kind of, kind of felt was a lyrical focus. And so I started to listen to that. And, and, and so that was probably what was coming out, even though there is no electric guitar, not that there isn't, I didn't play it on an electric in the version on splat, but, uh, but there's no question that it was kind of coming from listening to uh, that song hmm. on the Boulevard. Again, I think it's what's called. Me and my friends, we work in places where we can't argue or make funny faces. 
And the bosses are always on top of our cases But we take it, and yeah, we take it, and we take it Cause some of us are doctors, or artists and musicians Who can't quite bring our lives to fruition We use up the money on the college tuition Now a dead-end job is a price of ambition Not just a waiter, number one in this state Because to cater, that means food on my plate I could be greater, my mama always said You're not just a waiter Well they tell me to go and get a good education So I did, do I get some kind of congratulations? I mean I got a BA and a bad attitude And those go together like people and food But I don't want to sound like I'm so full of myself Cause it's my choice to live this way and nobody else's I mean if I wanted to live I could leap like a frog Why risk drowning when you're safe on a log? Not just a waiter Number one in this state Because to cater That means food on my plate I could be greater Mama always said you're not just a waiter For a while, as long as I'm working, will be as long as I'll smile. And as long as the boss is Hitler, I'll heil. I don't want any black marks to appear on my file. But I got no benefits, no, I got no plans. And the kitchen's too hot, I'll just go get a fan. And I'll watch all the girls go by in their tans. But I won't spill you drinks. I got such a steady hand, not just a waiter. Number one in this state, because to cater, that means food on my plate. I could be greater. Mama always said you're not just a waiter. No, that's what she said to me. You have splat out. You had graffiti previously. At this point, are you actively trying to find a record deal, for example, to kind of take your career to the next level? Is that now a goal of yours? I mean, how is the kind of, I mean, how does EMI get involved? I guess is the question for the, for the third record. Yeah, I was definitely doing that 
I was looking for a, a record deal. I mean, it was interesting time because I had a manager uh, that I started to work with. His name is Graham, and he was working with a, a band called the Earth Tones. I don't know if you heard, heard of those guys. They were kind of like a, a boy band type of group, hmm. pop group out of Calgary. And at this time, again, around sort of mid-90s. And so uh, I don't remember how we even co- connected, maybe through a show or something. But so, uh, you know, Graham was the one sort of busy sending things around on my behalf. And he would ma- do mail outs and hmm. connect with people. And I was aware of what he was doing. I mean, I, we obviously had conversations and we, I wanted to, that to happen. But, you know, the funny thing is, when I think about that period, and, and uh, is that I was also not too worried about it at the time because I was really feeling like there was enough positive things happening in Calgary. Calgary was new to me. Calgary was um, just, you know, the scene was just happening and I was making friends and playing lots of local shows. I used to play at the Republic a lot and Mm. I used to get all these good gigs. And and so I was just happy, man. I was content. I (laughs) I didn't I, the record deal thing was kind of in the back of my mind, but I wasn't waking up every morning thinking, oh, when, when is the phone going to ring for that? <laughs> um, which is probably the best way, you know, you know, probably buy some self-help book. It'll probably say that's the best <laughs> way, like keep pursuing your goal, but don't like get stressed out or, 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 you know, keep your eye on the prize sort of, but, but have fun doing it or something. And that's kind of what I was doing. And so when I, re- I, I, you know, never forget the day that Graham called me up and he had, like I said, been sending things around and he said, Oh, in EMI, I just got a call from uh, Bonnie Fedro, who was the A&R rep for EMI at the time. And he said, you know, Bonnie just called and, you know, they want to, you know, they want to talk to you. So, well, actually, I mean, the story, the story that goes like this (laughs) more specifically is that she said to him, uh, Oh, Dean Cameron, who is president of the, of the uh, who was the president of um, EMI at the time, uh, sadly, uh, Dean passed away mm-hmm. in the last couple of years, which is unfortunate. But mm-hmm. uh, he's a good man. But Dean was the president at the time. He said, "Oh, she said to Graham, oh, Dean heard Tarek's record and and he thinks he saw God. <laughs> <laughs> so he needs to he needs to talk. We need to talk to you." So that's so Graham relays this message. I'm like, "What? <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, there really, this is high praise here." <laughs> You know, it's one thing to get the attention of record label, they get the attention of God as well. Like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then it just kind of started rolling. They, they they called me up another like a week later, and I spoke to uh, Jody Mitchell, I think it was, who's another A&R person. He said, I'm going to come out there. Can you set up a gig? And hmm. and we'll come and check it out and everything. And so I did play, play a show at the Night Gallery, had the same band, the Splat Band. Hmm. And play the show and yeah, I had, had a meeting at the vicious circle down the street afterwards and it was all happening. It was crazy. Uh, they wanted to do a record deal. And, and then a week later, Graham and I were on an airplane out to Toronto oh, to wow. discuss, you know, in more detail. Yeah. So it kind of, that's, that's sort of how it happened. It sort of seemed to, once it, ha- once it happened, it sort of seemed to happen pretty fast. It was just in a way, like I said, it was a bit like icing on the cake because I was, having a great time just doing what I was doing in, in, in Calgary um, around the local scene. And then this just sort of happened. So, boom. 
and it was an interesting period in time in music, I think, mm-hmm. too. And you probably, you know, are aware because uh, I mean, all all the time you spent um, looking at this time period, mm-hmm. and maybe you know more about it than I do. But it, it just sort of seemed to me that you know that that record labels were quite hungry to sign mm-hmm. domestic acts. Absolutely, they were looking around. You know, yeah, they came to Calgary. I mean, there's a number. I mean, Zucker Baby is another example of a band who got signed pretty soon after I did, and. And I know that they had a lot of young artists on EMI, you know, uh, David Doyle was mm-hmm. new at the time, um, Dana Manning, a lot of those folks mm-hmm. sort of came came onto the scene around the same time I did, and we're all getting signed, we were all getting record deals. It was a really different time in the music. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. You know, yeah. Usually, yeah, usually it was just a different period. I'm curious, like, we discussed only, I think, one track from Splat made the, the leap to uh, Basement Songs. So I'm curious, um, mm-hmm. are, are they asking you to write a whole new record? Are they saying, we only like this song off this album, or give us more like that? I mean, what are those kind of conversations like? It's interesting why they picked the Not Just a Waiter song. I, maybe they just thought that was the, the one that could be a, a, a possible single, and it was uh, one of the singles that came off the record. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't think they had any interest, nor did I necessarily of like just redoing all those songs in a different way or anything. I'm Mm -hmm. glad that was never the task because I think that, you know, there was a certain magic and energy about a recording that I think is just better to, you know, you can't really recreate it. So I think from the get go, it was just, yeah, Hey, like let's, you know, we're signing it to a deal to make the record and write some songs. I don't remember that specifically whether they, you know, maybe they had even offered me like, do you want to do, not just a waiter again or not, or we, mm-hmm. we kind of like it. We think it'd be a great idea. I don't exactly remember those conversations, but right. I was fine with it. You know, it was one song. I was fine with it. And I didn't, I was, you know, I was kind of curious about the opportunity of reinvestigating uh, a song that I had played in a certain way and just to see what would happen. But otherwise I had, uh, yeah, the idea was that I would write new songs. Mm-hmm. And that was interesting because suddenly I'm writing songs, much quicker than before you know we wanted to it wasn't like okay now you got now you got another five to ten years to write songs like i would have had to generating all the other ones you know right, i just right. had maybe maybe 10 years is a bit long but i had <laughs> i did have sort of freedom of years to just kind of accumulate those songs without any kind of uh deadline of any sort whereas now it was a situation of like okay start start working on it but i like I like that. I didn't mind that. I, you know, I, I've, I've always liked working to deadlines. And, and so it was like, it was like, here's an artistic task for you, right? Songs. So, you know, so I, that, that was what I started to do. I may have had a few things, ideas kicking around, but for the most part, I feel like I just sat, sat in my, my room and just like sort of started like, I was like, okay, here we go. Now, what point did uh, Stephen Drake from odds, get involved because he produced the record he kind of came to me from the label side of things you know Mm. i think at that time and and maybe this is often the way record labels still work i'm not sure but i mean they emi had their he was kind of their it guy a little bit he's one of their it guys Mm. like he was doing a bunch of work for them and i think they 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 just had a good relationship with him and they thought that he was doing excellent work and yeah, I don't feel like we really went around going like, oh, like here's 10 producers, let's sort of decide. Mm. I feel like that name just came up and Stephen was doing 
you know, doing some work, I think maybe on some tragically hip stuff at the time, something like that. I know that they're not an EMI band, but I think he was doing, anyway, he was doing that and a bunch of different things. And I'd certainly heard of the odds as well. Um, so I was aware of that. Yeah. I, I, we didn't spend too much time um, messing around trying to decide on different, between different producers. I think they pitched Stephen at me and I met up with him and thought that was going to be fine. So, hmm. Yeah, I just kind of went for it. Uh, again, this is something I had had little experience, experience with. I, I had done a little, you know, when, when Christian produced the Splot record, I mean, I, again, I didn't, I wasn't like, well, I've got to find the right producer. I just sort of like, he, he Christian was a friend. He was a friend of all, I think he produced all those, all of our bands, <laughs> like a good number of Calgary bands <laughs> he produced. So he was just our our bro and they're like yeah he he was he was the person to work with so i didn't really uh yeah i didn't really feel any need at the time anyway to do a whole ton of research to decide whether you know someone else was a better fit or anything i don't know what i, I what was i really looking for i'm not sure i i i, I didn't really know i think I'd, but i i knew that he could make it sound good and he was a person who had good ears and a good um, sort of uh, studio knowledge and experience and technical. He's very, I, I remember meeting him when I, I flew out to Vancouver because I, did, I didn't live here at the time, still living in Calgary. And I came, came out here and he took me around to a bunch of different studios and he just knew, um, he knew lots of people. He knew a, a lot about gear and this, mm. you know, this, you know, preamp doing that such and such you don't get into these <laughs> conversations with everyone at every studio about oh see do you have the new focus right you know <laughs> three four nine six plug-in blah 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 you know <laughs> stuff i didn't know about it was always talking i was like oh okay kind of and kind of knows what he's talking about and him being a you know an accomplished songwriter himself um how was he then taking yeah. the songs you brought into him for that record did he um elevate them in a certain way did he just uh fine-tune them yeah, I think that's. I mean, that's a good. It's a good, good point that you're bringing up because I probably was thinking that too. Like, it was good to have someone who had, you know, who was in a who actually wrote songs to mm-hmm. work on a, on on the, on the album. Now, did he do any kind of a song? I don't believe there was too much going back into songs and like reconstructing them or mm. anything like that. I don't 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 really feel like we did too much of that. Maybe a little bit. There might have been a like go to the chorus here or, you know like sort of really basic things or do the chorus once or something like mm-hmm. that rather than twice right. or do it twice right. rather than once you know kind of standard stuff like that but we didn't de- deconstruct the songs too much I think I think he was more uh, open to going yeah like I think he just thought the songs were cool and how was he going to make them you know sound sound good he was just concerned about making making it sound good now, were you bringing your players in from Calgary, from the Splat Band? Or are you finding all new kind of session people? Well, I did. I did a little bit. Was you know that was a, an interesting um, situation there because he had an idea of a drummer that he wanted to, to specifically use. Um, I think you know. I, I think it's natural that producers kind of have musicians that they like to work with in the studio that they mm-hmm. communicate well with, and he had a guy, and he was like. I'd like to bring in this drummer 
And so that was a little bit, I remember having a bit of a tough conversation with the drummer that I was using at the time, Mm -hmm. uh, my friend James. And I, I, you know, I think he was, it it was interesting because he had played a lot of shows with me. We had gone on the road together. He had driven around in my crappy Volkswagen Fox station wagon and, (laughs) you know, all, all like cramped up with a bunch of gear and, you know, help me take the muffler back up when it fell off somewhere on the <laughs> Okahala highway, you know, like we, we, we've done a lot of stuff together and, and now, you know, here I am having to tell my friend that I, he can't play on the record. It was, it was a hard one. It yeah. was a hard one. Mm-hmm. I think many musicians, you know, still go through that. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not, it was unique only to me and it wasn't unique to the time either. We did have James come in and plan a couple of things, so okay. um, you know at least that was good. And James was, I know, understanding about it. And but yeah, that was a, 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 something that I hadn't had to really kind of deal with before, so that was a new one. Um, but other than that, then Diane played on the record, and then we did bring in local players as attracted Calgary to do guitar things or mm. different stuff. Yeah, I mean it was interesting. It was a, it was a great experience. It was different than the than the than the flat record. In that flat record was just me flying by the seat of my pants a little bit, and like here it felt a little bit more controlled because you know someone else was involved in the picture. It wasn't just pure, you know, like a bunch of friends making music. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not saying one's better than the other. It's it, I understand the reasons and strategies that come along maybe with making a record that's, you know, a, a deliverable, if you will, to a, to a record label. Um, it was a different experience, but, you know, still one that I, I, I value, valued and still value um, quite a bit. Now, before we uh, move away from the recording of Basement Songs, I would be remiss not to get all I can from you about uh, Chevrolet Way, because that's <laughs> the first song I ever heard from you. And what do you remember about the origin of that song and, you know, the writing of it, really, recording of it? Well, I remember it was one of those ones that I was saying to you, you know, it was like, go write some songs. And it was just sort of generated in the in the basement room sitting there. Like, I remember <laughs> I had a, I would record all my ideas. I had this old ghetto blaster. I think it belonged to people who owned the house I lived in. So I had that ghetto blaster and just a bunch of cassette tapes. And I recorded every idea that ever came up with on a cassette tape. And then... I have sort of one cassette tape for just, here's a riff, here's a, oh, here's a short thing, here's another short thing, here's another short thing. I have have some of those tapes, it's crazy, (laughs) short ideas. Then I have another tape, which if I was really working on an idea, it's like, let's develop this, let's develop this, and I would like dedicate that one cassette to that song. So I definitely got, yeah, I got to the point where I was like, okay, this this song is kind of going to get its own thing, and I'll just work on it. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I just hacked away at it, and I think I was trying to write a song. I mean, back then, I certainly even compared to now, I was writing more songs, I think, that were about things like race or kind of cultural struggles. And, you know, there's lots of songs about that, I think, on, on both Graffiti Artist and Splat, and so that carries over a little bit even into to the basement songs. Um, so that would have been, I think, one of those songs. I mean, I, I wouldn't really call myself 
a political songwriter and or, or that, that that was what I was trying to do but those things were on my mind and I've felt a certain conviction to like try and articulate you know in song some feelings about masculinity or um, racism or you know things that I had seen things that I had heard about uh, happening to other people I mean I feel like it's it's it is a personal song in some ways but I feel like it's kind of it's a reportage, I suppose, that that song. I would look at it hmm. now, or that's what it was tried to be, more of a reportage, because um, I was kind of telling stories of other people's experience hmm. with discrimination or coming across some situation in which uh, they felt threatened because of how they looked or who they were. Hmm. And those stories were things that I had heard or read about. And that was... So that's how I, I approached that song, I think, and I have had, you know, over my life, like not a lot, but I have had some of that experience. I mean, you know, maybe there's things like microaggressions and things like that, which we talk about now, which we were not talking about back <laughs> then. But that conversation is kind of a newer one. And to look back on, you know, my life and to figure out where those things occurred is, is a whole other different conversation. But like overt, you know, situations where I felt threatened or something for my own kind of like how I look I hadn't had like uh, you know I felt like I've kind of not experienced that a ton so I was drawing on uh, other people's stories but I had experienced it a little bit I certainly you know wasn't immune to it uh, luckily nothing of great consequence but mm-hmm. I had certainly felt in positions of being or feeling threatened or unsafe or self-conscious and those kinds of things. So I wanted to try and put that emotion into a song. And so that was really the strategy behind it. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And then it, and then it's a funny song because not funny, haha, but it's a, it's an odd, odd one because it kind of has all that intention behind it. And yet it's, sort of sound it sort of becomes this radio rock song mm-hmm. <laughs> at the same time uh which is fine because you know that's that's, that's totally okay uh, and maybe it's a song in which the feel of the song and the kind of musical communication of the songs sort of feels a bit more celebratory i don't know that's not totally it's a bit more anthemic or something, you know, um, then maybe the themes are, are, you know, you kind of have these darker themes, right. Darker ideas. And yet the song can be just sort of enjoyed as a, you know, I don't want to say a fully fist pumping in the air kind of song, but I feel like it has a great pop song. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, I think that was probably my, first experimentation into that i don't even know if that's what i was trying to do but i I certainly know that that's a that's a style of songwriting like if i would say to someone to give them a songwriting exercise i might say okay like write a song that's you know that's somewhat feels celebratory but has you know know, maybe has another kind of uh undercurrent of message going on um, I guess, you know, like, like a board in the USA or something like mm-hmm. that kind of, I'm not trying to equate my song on that level, but, but that's kind of the idea. It feels like, you know, it's a, it's an anthemic song and mm-hmm. yet it has a dark under undertone to what's going on. So um, it's a certain way of writing a song, which I think actually works. And so I suppose I was feeling my way around that 
a little bit. And of course, adding, you know, I wrote it on the guitar by myself. I didn't write it with the band, so it probably had a slightly gentler, calmer, maybe even darker feel just sitting in my room playing on the guitar. But of course, you add a full band to it and more guitars to it, and then it immediately elevates it to kind of that next uh, next kind of level. But I didn't necessarily know it was going to be the single off the record. I don't know. I can't, can't remember if I thought that or not, but wasn't trying to trying to write a single I was just writing a, another song of many a song
song um yeah i'm sure you've been asked this many times but that get misunderstood in a way i mean was chevrolet asking you to use that song in a, in a, in a context that wouldn't in which it wasn't written like to use it for a car or commercial or something of that nature no unfortunately no no uh, <laughs> i'm shocked actually. i never no i know some people would probably i think it joked about that or like we had sort of discussed that i mean unless some chevrolet company is using it and i don't know about it you know somewhere <laughs> Sneakily, um, I know, I know. I, I have, have often like fantasized about what would happen in that scenario. Like, what would you do <laughs> exactly. if you got asked that? Because, because, yeah, like, is, would you allow your song to be used in a way that is really kind of not about what it was originally written mm-hmm. about? I don't know. Probably when I first wrote the song, I would have adamantly said no or something. But now, maybe I would. Now, I think people look at it differently i've heard a lot of you know integrity artists on commercials so it's not you know it's not uh it doesn't seem like people think of it i think people understand that you need to make a living exactly yeah if someone's going to pay me like a whole <laughs> lot of money to do that i would i would probably i mean i don't know i i have to really think about this but <laughs> I, I think there's a, par- a good part of me that would be like okay you know, because it's just a different thing. Like it could be, you know, it's, I'm not, I, I, if someone asked me what the song is about, I'm not going to pretend it's not about what I wrote it mm-hmm. about, but if someone wanted to use it under that situation, then, you know, I, there'd be a limit, obviously like Chevrolet trucks would be probably fine. Yeah. I wouldn't use it for some other, you know, some kind of hate party or something that I didn't, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. But, right, right, right. But 
they probably wouldn't pay me a million dollars either. <laughs> exactly. <if you> think. <laughs> the whole track has like a, 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 an intentional ad campaign built right into it, like the Chevrolet way. Like that's just the tagline of the whole ad campaign. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where that, I don't know where that came from. I really don't. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I like wordplay. I always have. And I like things that kind of, yeah, just uh, words that go together. The things just, I don't think, I don't know if I heard somebody say it or, or what, or if I just, I mean, there's often times where I'm still writing songs these days where things kind of pop out. You know, I'm not really sure how I made that, how my brain formed that phrase, but it put two things together. And so they came into existence. Yeah. Which is kind of fun, but I probably like the sound of it because it sort of has a built in rhyme Chevrolet ways or just Mm -hmm. rolls off the tongue. Yeah. So now once the record is kind of packaged and recorded and ready to go, what is now that experience like being under the umbrella of a major label? I mean, making music videos, you know, and so on and so on, you know, doing press or doing bigger tours, for example. I mean, what was the kind of the next steps and how to work the record now being under a major label as opposed to kind of doing it DIY? Yeah, I loved it. I loved it all. I mean, they, the label, the record, the folks below record label were definitely kind of helping to keep the ball rolling. They were always, I was always in touch with them about, you know, sort of strategies between again, Graham, my manager at the time and the label about, okay, here's what we got to do next. And there was always something exciting to do coming up. It just never, it never kind of felt like there wasn't something new and exciting that I hadn't done before, you know, like even, even when just at the tail end of the record before it came out, you know, Bob Ludwig was the person who mastered that record. Um, who's a famous master. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's mastered everything from, you know, I'm sure he's probably mastered some Springsteen records, Madonna, whatever. He lives in Portland, Maine, not Portland, Oregon. And I remember I flew down, they, EMI flew me out there and they said, would you like to go to Bob Ludwig's studios? Huh. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm sure I was happy to go <laughs> anywhere to travel and see this guy. So yeah, I went there. It was just an afternoon and well, I sat next to Bob Ludwig as he mastered that wow. record. So, you know, there was always something interesting to be done. So after the record was done, yeah, you mentioned music videos. Um, that would have been the next thing that we did. And, and I had made a, a couple of music videos on my own independently, but, you know, these had a little bit of a, a bit more of budget in them. Um, you know, back then, that's the kind of thing that labels were spending money on. Mm-hmm. So... We were doing that uh, again. I was. I remember flying out to Ontario to go and do that. Pub press tours, as you mentioned, yeah, that's you know that was a whole like. I would just do. I would just fly around just doing press, like it was. Hmm. Well, I, yeah, I, fly, I think I would. I remember flying to like. I, mean, I would do press around Alberta, obviously, and I could, and then I would fly to. I remember flying. I think to like, uh, you know. I guess Ontario and then maybe driving around to some different places and doing brass, probably somewhere in the prairie. I mean, it hit, I didn't hit every place, but I'm pretty sure I, I, re, I remember going to like Winnipeg or something like that and doing a day of press there. You know, um, it was pretty cool, like mm-hmm. to, to get to be able to do all that stuff that I never really did on my own. I had, I really only had the experience of the local. Uh, when when I was doing Splat, and again I was like I said I was loving the Calgary thing, and it was really all I needed. I I was in a bubble in a sense. I just I was happy to be in that bubble, 
Calgary was offering me lots of press and I got on the radio and I was doing interviews with the local magazines and but now to suddenly have the opportunity to take it wider you know that was I think the, the new discovery with EMI it's like wow and this whole thing just is kind of reaching a, a, a much larger kind of scope you know I always have a memory of my sister who still lives in Ontario and was living in Ontario at the time calling me up and saying uh, you know, we just heard you on the radio and, and she she's talking commercial radio, you know, and right. I might've, I might've gotten some play on CBC perhaps, but I don't even know if she ever, you know, the, the plays on CBC weren't that often. So the chances that she might hear it were rare. Like mm. she'd have to be at the right place at the right time to catch that. She obviously wouldn't hear TKUA plays, which was Alberta's focused, but you know, commercial radio, yeah. a pretty good chance that, some point she's going to be in the car and she's going to hear it. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. And then, you know, with Chevrolet way and then Amazing, yeah. there was a period there. Yeah. It was a little window in there where she was, you know, it almost became like, well, I'm not going to call my brother every time I hear the car. I'm hearing it a lot. So, um, but I remember that first phone call where she was freaking out and I was kind of freaking out. That's awesome. oh, this is cool. Yeah. So, you know, uh, that was that I think was kind of the, the thing you started to see with having a major label was that you know the, the way that the music was able to reach farther distances and farther places and farther ears and then you know from some of that and that those are some of the initial things that happen I think you know because they release a single that's what I would say is, it would be the strategy was to put the put the record out but you know release a single uh, video. So some of this stuff happens. And then, as you mentioned, again, the touring that sort of comes maybe after some of this stuff has had a chance to bubble a little bit. And then you go in support of the, of the tour. And again, I was, I remember being kind of blown away by the power that all, all this synergy was having because, uh, you know, and I remember playing, I have a distinct memory of playing a Canada Day show soon after Chevrolet Way was starting to get radio play. It was this was still a Calgary show, but it was I, I was on Princess Island Park, hmm. Canada Day outside. The Lifter was playing, I think Age of Electric, you know, a few of those bands, mm-hmm. and myself. I was on the bill, and I think I played first. And you know, I was like swarms of like people all like pushing <laughs> up against the front of the stage and like moshing, <laughs> and you know, I was like, whoa, this is so weird. I've never, you know. <laughs> I never experienced this before, like an outdoor show. You can sort of picture, you know, outdoor show of just like hundreds of people just like, and again, just pushing their way up. And, and it was because they had heard the song on the radio. And so there was, there was that connection there and, and it just changed things. And I noticed that later when we went out again and did, we toured with Great Big Sea. I remember that was probably the biggest hmm. tour that we did as an opening act on that record across Canada and we toured with them and you know people again um, had some familiarity I think with the Chevrolet way and the song and then you know we weren't anywhere near as you know popular or known as great big sea were but I think there was a sense that people were aware of what we were doing and that they had heard of it so again you know just to be able to see the the power of the of the of the record label machine, you know, of a major mm-hmm. a major label record uh, machine in, in the works. So so there, yeah. So we did that tour. Uh, that was pretty fun, and um, you know, and then and then 
then came the Juno nomination, you know, a lot mm-hmm. there was just, it just felt like there was a lot of new things that were happening but with that record. Uh, I just sort of had a, just created this whole new life uh, for myself that I just didn't know anything about before. It was cool. And like with Chevrolet being a distinct kind of an American brand, um, was it a goal to kind of play gigs in the U.S. as well to kind of promote that song and that record? Yeah, that that was. I think that always is a goal to tap into the U.S. market, and it was more challenging. I remember that. I remember a, a weekend where I flew down with the record label. Where did we go? I can't remember where we were. Uh, Omaha, somewhere in Omaha, hmm. and um, we, we, there was a, lo- a record label that was potentially interested in putting out the album. Um, and so we went to meet with them and I played a few songs or something like that. I don't think anything came of it. I'm not sure why. I don't, I don't, I don't really remember why I didn't, but mm-hmm. I know the label was interested in doing that. So that was, an, that was kind of, uh, the next thing. Yeah. That, uh, uh, became like something that the label kind of wanted, uh, but it didn't, we never really got a release in the States. They, they think they, they tried pitching it to various people. And it is, you know, it's, it's always a challenge, I think. Certainly was at that time, you know, American labels have their own American artists. And they've got, it's not like there's any shortage of them, I don't think. So <laughs> they don't necessarily need to start promoting a Canadian unknown guy, you know, like me at that time. So, so we did have a lot of luck there. I don't think I did any touring in America America's so big. I think we, there was some discussion of maybe doing localized, like a bit more localized touring. And, mm. you know, from my perspective, even now, it seems like that's a pretty good strategy. Like if I was to try and say, start playing in the, in the States, I don't know if trying to tackle one end of the country to the other would make a lot of sense. It may be, make more sense to say, do like, oh, Portland and Seattle and just keep hitting that. Mm-hmm. hitting those places for a little while or but uh, so i remember having those discussions like what might might be a good strategy um both with my manager graham at the time and um maybe some folks at the label but we didn't we never really got to doing that too much mm-hmm. yeah didn't really didn't come about i think it was on our radar and on our desire list but we didn't make it happen now we i did i you know i did start to have some other interesting connections in the USA because after the Basin songs kind of had its track life is sort of done, you know, the label was talking about working, me working on another record. And so I was actually spending a fair amount of time in the States co-writing with people. And so I was down there, I went to LA a bunch. I went to Woodstock, New York. I wrote, I wrote with Jules Shear. Um, I don't know if you've heard of him. He's, Still, like I still think he's like one of my <laughs> one of the most awesome songwriters out there. He's great, great lyricist. He wrote some pretty famous songs, like uh, if she knew what if she knew what she wants, the Bangles. If she hmm. knew what she wants, oh, wow, yeah. if she knew what she wants, I'd be giving it to her. Yeah, you can find an acoustic recording of Jules Shear just singing that song. Huh the way that he wrote it before it was produced. He wrote all through the night, Cindy Lauper. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I wrote with that guy. It was wild working huh. with him because here's another example of great connections that the label had because I had listened to Jewel Shear in university. Someone had given me this <laughs> random cassette tape uh, of the album, The Great Puzzle. I remember I used to listen to it a lot. Like I, I wore that thing out. I loved it. And then when I was on EMI, you know, 
many, many years later, and we were sort of wrapping up basement songs and talking about a new record and the possibility of co-writing, they, they said, well, we know this guy, you know, we, J- Jewel Shear, and he lives in New York. Would you be interested in writing with him? I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> uh, of course. Like, holy man, like, I love that guy. So, yeah, we sort of put that together and got to write with him. I wrote in, in L.A. I wrote with uh, one of the uh, women, Charlotte Caffey, who's part of the Go-Go's. Huh. I remember having an afternoon songwriting session with her. Yeah, so we had some interesting, you know, sort of connections into America, but they weren't necessarily of, you know, uh, the performing nature, but but they were of the creative nature. What's like an afternoon songwriting session look like? I mean, especially with like somebody, like a stranger, essentially. You guys show up yeah. with the guitars and have a cup of coffee and then just start strumming along? I mean, what is the kind of... Man, it's a it's an interesting one. I, I did more co-writing in that period than I've ever done since. I haven't, I haven't done as much of it. Uh, since, but yeah, it's pretty much what you're describing because huh. you're re- you're really working with strangers, people you never met. You might obviously walk in there. Sometimes I went to their houses, huh. and you just sit down. I mean, you obviously like chat for a bit, get maybe get a little bit familiar, and then you start. I mean, with Jewel Share was it was really quite nice because I think we did four days of co-writing. So the very first day we didn't write; we just sort of hung out, went for a walk, talked, and then we knew we had. But we had a strategy that we would write a song a day, and we did that. So I think maybe it was five days. Like the first day was just a bit of a hang, and then every other day was a song a day. That's what we said we would do, and we would end the day by recording it on huh. four track, and then recordings, which I still have, nice. actually. And um, and then we would go out for dinner, and that was and so that's that was how we did. Some other cases with co-writing, I was just maybe one day. Um, you know, I've done I've done everything all around the map from one day to a couple of days to to longer sessions. Um, and some in some cases, it works. Yeah, it works better than others. It really just depends on who you end up sitting with. I I can be pretty easygoing. I think in in a lot of ways, like I I don't I, you know I like obviously like like my introverted sitting in my room writing songs kind of way of doing things but i was also okay with uh, you know more than okay with trying it as an experiment of, of saying hey okay well whatever like let's just go in and have fun and try it out and uh i i, I can I, I you know i'm willing to try those things like it doesn't feel like it's it, anything is lost by doing that um yeah, i wasn't resistant to it it didn't make me uncomfortable there were some points where you felt like oh this is kind of hard um to you know to sit in the same room as someone and like generate something but but again i like i said i like deadlines i like challenges so um i think in most cases it was always a a, a, a positive experience in one way or another i don't know if all, if, if all the songs that came out were ever things that i felt super connected to that might be the only thing like i think the jewels ones i do i did some of the other ones maybe it's weirder to sing songs that uh, other people put lyrics in you know um i think i might maybe be more willing to collaborate musically with people now rather than lyrics because you've got to sing the lyrics and if someone Mm -hmm. says a turn of phrase in a way that you kind of wouldn't do it i don't know it just feels odd sometimes not always but it can feel a little odd unless, you know, unless it's like a duet and like, you know, it's, it's clearly like song is a, is 
two people, but I was like, we were writing songs really for my, for me. That was the idea. It was like, this, these are going to be potentially songs on a Tarek record. Mm. And so, you know, the other songwriters would be essentially, you know, behind the curtain. You're not really going to know anything about them. So I, I had to stand, I, mm. I had to make those lyrics. I had to be able to stand by those lyrics. And sometimes I, I it found it a little bit harder to do that because it's easier, I think, to sing things that you've written. But, you know, from a musical standpoint, um, it can really be enriching because it's that people have lots of like cool ideas about chord changes or ways of, of structuring meter or whatever that can really pull you to a, a way of writing that you maybe have never thought of before. Um, one more question in the way back machine and then we'll focus on more current affairs and then uh, you can get on for the rest of your Saturday. But uh, <laughs> I'm just curious, um, Basement Songs came out in 97 and then the follow-up, which you're describing the writing process for came out in 2001 which is a four-year gap, which is double what your previous kind of output was. I'm just curious, why the uh, was there a change going on? What was the kind of delay between getting the follow-up to Basement Songs out maybe a couple of years sooner? Well, a huge change because I wasn't on the label anymore. Oh, <laughs> so wow. There you transition. go. The way the cookie crumbles sometimes, and that's just the way it crumbled at that particular huh. time. I mean, I think for a lot of different reasons, you know, I mean, it was definitely a hard time. It was hard to go from all those glorious things that I've been describing to you, you know, in terms of what a label can do for you promotion-wise to then feeling like, oh, the, you don't have that anymore. You know, that, mm. that, that infrastructure isn't there. Um, and I mean, I think there's a lot of factors. Uh, some of it falls on my shoulders as well. You know, if I think about things that I might not have been doing right, I didn't necessarily know the kind of record I wanted to make. I remember having uh, my sort of final meeting with EMI before I got the news that they weren't going to renew uh, the contract hmm. or pick up the option or however you want to say it. I, you know, I had gone around and, and done all this co-writing with all these people, as I've been describing. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I wrote with, co-wrote with so many people. It was almost too much. Like it was fun, but it was probably too much because I, I wrote with like all those people I mentioned. I was, you know, I wrote with I even wrote with Tom Cochran. I wrote with Andrew Cash. No, I wrote well. with wrote with Hoxie Workman. No, uh, no, I, I remember wrote with tons of people. Yeah, and I, it, it sort of made it sort of I became like a bit of a. It was, it was like I just didn't know what I wanted to do anymore. I, in a way, maybe I should have just picked something and done it. It was it was the what is the expression like the. Um, like the, 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 I can't remember what the actual expression is, but it's a, that sort of thing about the peril of having too many options. Oh, right. um, you know, that could be a dangerous thing sometimes that you can't decide what you want to do. So I went into that meeting kind of like, I think they might have even asked me point blank, like, what kind of record do you want to make? <laughs> and I might have said, I might have said, I don't know. You know? <laughs> uh, that's not a very good answer. And, um, and so I think uh, that, that was a, a detriment. I also think that the record industry was also changing quite strongly. And mm. as uh, you know, as the year 2000 came around, because that was where this was happening, 2001 and then around there. And there was a lot of pop music on the radio stations, mm-hmm. you know, rock, rock stuff was a bit out of uh, fashion. And, you know, my last record had been, I'd say probably more of a rock uh, oriented record. Um, I was not 21. I was like, 31, you know, mm. uh, so a lot of, there was a lot of factors, I think. And then the industry was changing in that Napster was coming out and 
you know, from the, I think from my perspective, I, you know, I, I don't have all the facts on this, but my sense is, you know, from that period there where which we were talking about in which labels were signing left, right, and center, that those that glory day had passed and mm-hmm. they were starting to see like, oh boy, we we need to control this a little bit more because people, you know, where's the revenue going to come if people are just sharing files and all this kind of stuff. So they were in a bit of a rethink as well. So all of that, I think, combined was really the reason why it just didn't happen in terms of the next record. And so I had to figure out how to do it on my own again. Hmm. And so that's the time delay that you're talking about. Interesting. I had to kind of rethink and relearn the old ways of doing things (laughs) like applying for grants and, you know, I, I remember applying to factor grants, which I had done previously and, and then, you know, did so again. And thankfully, you know, factor's always been very supportive. Uh, and then there was other grants available in Alberta, you know, uh, uh, or Alberta Arts Council grants and so forth. So there was all that. And I think it was just a, almost a, a kind of a rethink period too, like, uh, and a bit of a healing period and a bit of a, you know, a grieving period because mm-hmm. of going through getting to that pinnacle point where you think you want to be and then to not be there anymore. You know, it doesn't, uh, I think I, I remember struggling to try and get back there somehow, not with EMI because I knew that door was closed, but somewhere else I was, mm-hmm. I, you know, I was starting to phone, I don't know. I don't know who I was phoning. I was phoning all over the place. I was, you know, and then, and then of course the inter- we had the internet now. And, and so I was, I remember e- emailing people and trying to, I was sending out packages constantly, I, you know, oh, yeah. send out those, my CDs uh, regularly at the post office doing mail outs to this label, to that label, anywhere, America yeah. managers. I didn't have a manager anymore at the time because we had parted ways. So I don't know. I was just in flux and, trying to get some stability and it was, yeah, it was a tough time. And it was an interesting way to think, you know, God, I have thought a lot about success and, you know, ego and everything, you know, you feel like, how does the world see you anymore? Like, because you invest so much of your uh, sense of worth and value in, in, Oh, I'm uh, you know, I'm a EMI recording artist and people put value in that, you know, your mm-hmm. family puts value in that, or you think they do, or, I'm sure that I, I'm quite sure my family didn't, you know, I'm sure they were disappointed for me or sad for me, but I don't think they thought any less of me, but mm-hmm. I thought they might, you know, yeah. I thought, Oh, well, you know, now my mother's going to think I'm this kind of a failure. Like, yeah, you know, I, yeah, you go through all of these kinds of things and it just kind of makes you rethink like, how, how are you going, how are you going to get by now? And, and, and how you think about music. You know, and mm. this brings us back full circle to those very beginning things that I was <laughs> talking about when I said, you know, there's a certain naivety in writing songs the way I used to when I did graffiti artist, and I didn't know it. I never played any shows. I had no sense of what. A, uh, those were fun times because I didn't know anything different, and I was just having fun writing songs. And if you know a cool thing happened, it was great. Now all of a sudden. You have these preconceived notions of like being on the radio, getting on much music, because that was, you know, the video deliverable at that time, mm-hmm. selling records, producers, I, all of this knowledge is good knowledge because you, you feel more rounded and not so naive, again, to use that word, but, you know, you've lost the sort of, you lose the sort of joy of the naivety too, because now you have expectations mm-hmm. and you have uh, desire and you have, you know, everything all gets woven up into this thing. And so, you know, 
all of that uh, meant a, a bit of time before I could really even feel like I wanted to go back and make a record again. Like it just, you know, partly wanting some help, trying trying to seek a, a lifeline, and partly trying to figure out my own lifeline. Interesting. Um, yeah, so that was really why it took a, took that time for me to do it. It took a couple. I'm sure it took. Yeah, like I don't know what you were saying. It's been it was a number of years. I don't remember when while you're down there came out. If I forget now, but I think it was 2001. And I think Basement was 97. Yeah. 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 So uh, you've continued to uh, write and record all these years later. So I'm curious. Um, all the things that uh, we've kind of talked about now. Is that, how has that informed um, your latest record, Telegrams, from 2019? How has all that experience and life experience and music experience kind of informed the writing and making of your latest studio record? You know, sometimes I feel like I know so much more and sometimes I feel like I have <laughs> constantly relearning things or <laughs> still don't still don't know the answers to some of the same old questions, you know. I mean, I, I you know, the most important thing I think is the songwriting. I mean, and that's probably worth addressing first. I, I feel like I'm always interested in the craft of songwriting. I'm constantly learning. And so I probably, I think I'm pretty sure I write songs that have it, that are different in a way than what I was writing before. You know, again, I didn't strategically say I'm going to try and write something different. It just evolved. But you know more about like, or you think you know more. Again, sometimes <laughs> I think I don't. But I think I know more about how to write a better song. But uh, uh, so you bring that knowledge with you. As far as the business side of things, I mean, it's, you know, I, I think some of those things that I learned are still applicable, um, you know, um, in terms of uh, how labels work. And I don't, I, I, don't, I don't think it's changed that radically in, in some ways. Like, I still think like there's probably stuff about being on a major label that probably works the same way but there are a lot of different things too you know we you know just the way you can put out music or present music into the world is 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 different and so you kind of just grow and evolve with the times and with it with whatever is going on and and really kind of hope that you're improving your your skills and your your craft skills you know recently i've even i've actually was taking a, a, a songwriting course um, there's this cool company out of LA that does songwriting classes. They really do them in a cool way. They're done on Zoom, um, and they're it's they're young young guys who are running the company, and so they they're picking very cool artists to uh, host these workshops. We had a, a woman named Hannah Hannah Reed who has a, a band called Lamelda, hmm. kind of an indie songwriter, but just a very cool kind of way of of writing it was really cool to do this workshop they do it over the course of a couple of weeks it's very uh easy going the, the onus is kind of on you as a songwriter to produce things they give you a prompt you know you meet 70 for 75 minutes five times over the weeks it's on a sunday a thursday sunday thursday and a sunday hmm. and you get a you get this cut you work on things in between and you share them in small zoom breakout rooms and then you also and then Hannah will come back and talk to the group about some kind of songwriting concept, give you a writing task, and off you go. But, you know, to, to realize that I'm still, like, learning things about songwriting and making discoveries about songwriting now after having done it yeah. for so long, that, 
that I didn't understand know before. It was it was weird. Like I just sort of I, you know saying that to someone the other day, like, huh? I was working on this one of these exercises that Hannah gave, and I was like, damn, I think I'm finally understanding how to write a song. You know, <laughs> it's weird. Like I love that about it. You know, it means it's like a never ending kind of pursuit. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, there's just so much to know about everything from production techniques to you know, audio techniques, because I also think that's a big part of how it, what makes a song these days is how things sound. And, and then also just, you know, how to approach rhythm or how to approach uh, structure in a song. You know, I, I'm actually taking another one of these workshops coming up here. And one of the topics that they've listed is writing against structure. Like, why, why do we have to, why do we have to write like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, you know, like we're going to explore other ways. And you see that now. I see that with young songwriters. They don't write, they don't write linear songs that follow that pattern anymore. And it's really cool to me. I think that that's more what I aspire to. Hmm. I mean, I love a good verse chorus kind of song too. And it's not to throw that out the window, but there are, you know, what about a song that doesn't really have that kind of formal structure? What about a song that's a minute long, you know, just different ways of writing songs that defy kind of expectation, you know, and, and, and that's kind of cool because, you know, you've kind of come from a situation of getting songs played on the radio and thinking about like what makes a radio song. Like I wasn't trying to write hits, but I was kind of aware of a sort of formality and, and uh, about writing songs that maybe fit that, fit that way of delivering songs. Like I, most songs on the radio, even at the time that I was getting played on commercial radio sort of fit a certain, uh, prototype, you know, more or less, you know, not to say they, they didn't do interesting things, but, but now, you know, like you kind of hear songs that structurally are quite weird and it's exciting to kind of think that there's new possibilities and new ways of composing songs. So that's, that's really what gets me fired up. I feel like, uh, I'm excited about the, about the craft and continually kind of like making, discovering, you know, kind of new ways of doing things. Is there a, a song off Telegrams that uh, you think would really be a good gateway song into the rest of the record that uh, you'd like people to hear? Maybe, maybe the song, you know, we were sort of talking about a slightly altered, it's not radical, but <laughs> I feel like it's a song that doesn't have maybe a verse chorus shape to it. Last chord. Mm. Oh, no, not last chord. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Last chord. Yeah. Yeah. Last chord might be a fun one to play. you a song would you sing it something with something like four chords in it up to the five down to the four and maybe minor chord oh, oh sure like the sound of that chord i wipe the frost from my nose on the sleeve of my coat drag an old cup of soup Package torn open that nobody wanted to drink. Feathers that look like snow, snow floating. Feathers that look like snow. She said, I sleep on the floor at the punk rock house. And everything I own fits in this cave. From an old typewriter. 
Then she took my hand and she laid me down While our boots by the door passed their secrets around Whispering tongues, slippery sad words Fell asleep to the sound of the rain pouring down Fell asleep to that sound question um i have a playlist on apple and spotify all, all 90s uh can rock so i'm asking all the guests to uh contribute uh two kind of singles slash well-known songs and one deep cut for the playlist so how would you like you know only basement songs is on spotify and, and apple i believe streaming but how would you like um Tarek's 90s work to be represented on the playlist i mean the singles would be obviously chevrolet way and not just a waiter so one kind of deep cut I'm sort of torn between two here. Let me just see. I don't like that one. <laughs> that is kind of a fun one. Oh, this one. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, that was the one I was thinking might be good. I don't want to be good. Mm. It's the last song on the record, so it's probably the one, if, if anything, it maybe gets the least heard because maybe people don't always listen to the very end of the record. <laughs> they get kind of done it halfway or three-quarters of the way. So, yeah, and it's, you know, it's like one of those. And I'm, I'm actually currently working on a book about um, music and family. It's a memoir. So Awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so um, I've been thinking a bunch about, you know, family stuff, and it's it's kind of dealing with... It's a song that kind of deals with um, some of those topics. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the uh, the time today to chat with me about your experience in the '90s, man. It's been uh, fantastic. Cool, no problem. That was uh, yeah, that was fun. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven's Rule. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to Patreon.com/RaveDrool, become a patron, get access to deleted audio get advanced notes of the guests, and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Visit redbubble.com, search Rave Drool, and you can buy various goods with the Rave and Drool podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more Naughty's Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. 
And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself with tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care. Yeah.